Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. I'm here with Jeff Miller, author of The Mating Mind, How Sexual Choice shape the evolution of human nature and also jeff uh, you also have a podcast you're doing with with tucker max called the mating grounds and uh uh jeff before i fully introduce you i want to kind of try my own definition of who you are and what you do and and what evolutionary psychology is and why it's important so you so even though i haven't let you talk yet uh let me try this and you correct me if i'm wrong okay so so you're an evolutionary psychologist, which I understand to mean that many of the choices we might make, most people think they have to do with, oh, you know, my boss treated me bad last week or my wife or husband treated me bad last week. So now I'm, I'm acting neurotic or crazy about it and I need help. So most people think that their decisions are made off of events that happened in either the past week or psychologists might say it might be related to events that happened in your childhood or in your first relationships or whatever. But an evolutionary psychologist says that a good chunk of our decisions, particularly ones relating to sexual or survival decisions, and, and almost every decision is in some way related to those two things, an evolutionary psychologist says that these decisions are related to events that happened millions of years ago and have evolved over time and that evolution has caused many of perhaps the neuroses we face in society now. Did I get yeah, that that's, right? That's pretty good. I like that. Yeah. I mean, when, you know, I'm sitting next to somebody on the airplane and they ask what I, what I do, I say evolutionary psychology. What's that? Well, we study human nature by thinking about how our prehistoric ancestors survived and mated and parented. That's basically it. And we, we think quite a bit about what kinds of perceptions and ways of thinking and um, preferences would have led to successful reproduction under those circumstances versus what kinds would have just died out because they don't work adaptively. You so, know, this, so, for instance, um, if, uh, if our ancestors liked being by themselves all the time, then those people probably would have died out and we would never have been born. So because we're alive, our ancestors liked hanging out with a group of people and liked having, you know, sex with each other. 
Yeah, absolutely. The, you know, the pep talk I give to young people like my college students is every single one of your ancestors managed to successfully survive and mate and live long enough to raise a kid. Right, if they you- hadn't, you wouldn't be here. And so, you know, you might be the weakest link <laughs> in a very long chain, but it's not super likely. So th- things will get better. Well, it's interesting because I heard you mention on, on one podcast that, um, you know, the, the old there's a saying, you know, men tend to uh, marry women with traits similar to their mothers and women tend to marry uh, people with traits similar to their fathers. But there's an evolutionary reason for that, because you, your 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 mother uh, actually did live long enough and healthy enough to give birth to you. And, exactly. And yeah. You. Yeah, we did a paper on this, like, now an embarrassing number of years ago where we pointed out that parental imprinting is a pretty good idea because you're basically imitating success. Like, if you're a young man and your dad is still alive and had you, at least one offspring, he did something right. I mean, regardless of how much of a fool he is in other domains. So So even if um, he beat you every day, somehow or other, you managed to turn into an adult so you're going to emulate some properties he had because that's your best guess. You know, the goal of DNA is to recreate itself forever. So yeah, this is yeah, your yeah. best guess as to how to do it, is how your father treated you. And also, you know, we pay attention to any local adults who seem to be doing well as we're, if we're you know, growing up as kids. It's like find a mentor, imitate what they do. Um, and that's why young people are so keenly tuned into status and prestige and who's worth imitating. I think that's pretty instinctive too. Well, let's let's talk about that. So there's a couple things I want to talk about. First, I want to talk about what you're working on now, which is essentially practical advice from an evolutionary point of view about how both men and women can act better to make better, let's call I don't want to call them mating decisions, but how, how to basically meet men and women, how women can meet men better and how men can meet women better. Because obviously in our society, this is problematic, you know, particularly since we don't have such controlled setting like in a, an ancient tribe where things were either arranged or you knew everybody from birth. We have this wide open economy of I can meet anybody I want. So and yet, even though things are wide open for maybe the first time in history, we're still making decisions from an evolutionary point of view, so that leads to a certain neurosis in our mating decisions. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is your typical 20-year-old American now is probably a lot worse at courtship and mating and knowing their mate value and how to talk to the other sex than at almost any other point in history. Why formal education? Right? Education is about developing economically useful skills for a job market and basically, you know, your high school teachers want to exclude courtship practice from the curriculum because it's, it's A, politically controversial, and B, it's distracting from calculus. But also it's probably instinctive, courtship practice. It's instinctive, but it, it's suppressed, right? It's actively suppressed by the ed- educational establishment. So uh, you can pass notes in class and you can text to your, your girlfriend or boyfriend and, you know, teenagers are intrinsically motivated to do that practice and they'll do it as much as they can but the powers that be don't exactly encourage it um, and so you end up in a situation where people are really good at at a lot of formal things like they know their history and their math but they don't like a lot of guys at that age just don't know how to talk to women or how to approach them 
But but I would argue also, you know, our let's say our species developed, you know, 1.2 million years ago. I don't I don't know the exact number of years, but let's say that's roughly correct. It's really only in the past 10 years that a guy's or a girl's uh, let's call them options is are open to not just the people, the 30 people in my tribe, but to the million people who might be on match.com or, or whatever. So it, it's not only that we don't know how, because we haven't been taught. We don't know how, because even for the past 10 years, mating and courtship, the ideas behind courtship have evolved so quickly. They've outpaced our natural evolution. And I think that's created this kind of almost permanently neurotic behavior among everybody. Yeah, that's a good, that's a great insight. You know, we have really good instincts for being able to, you know, sniff the back of somebody's neck and kind of know whether their pheromones are healthy and, uh, you know, or are they genetically related to us. We do not have good instincts for doing a great, okay, Cupid profile, right? No good instincts for how do you do texting effectively because they're just too evolutionarily novel. Um, well, and, well think- and, and it's interesting because, uh, and I'm, now I'm going back to your book, The Mating Mind, where a lot of the, um, so, so you basically dive into kind of uh, the little known part of Darwin's theory. You, you leave natural selection alone a little bit and you focus on sexual selection, which is really fascinating. I'll, I'll let you get into it, and, but I just want to understand it. So sexual selection was almost like the opposite of natural selection in that you're going to show off features that actually hurt your chances of survival because if you have these features that can actually expose you to predators, it's sort of showing off that you're even stronger than the, peop- the other uh, males, for instance, that you're competing against. Uh, both men and women um, could could kind of do this what you call peacocking feature, where like a peacock is obviously exposing himself too much to a predator, but he's sort of flaunting it and saying, "Yeah, I'm so I'm such a tough guy, I can get away with this." And then you 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 lead it on to how financial transactions, like we give a, a you know men give a woman a useless diamond ring because it, and that hurts our survival chances because you say that's a way to signal in the sense that we have money to, to flaunt and money is useful for, for survival. Um, but now with texting and all this electronic communication, I think that confuses, you know, in a 1.2 million year history, the last 10 years probably confuses things considerably. So how do you fight it? That's a really good description of sexual selection. A lot of it's about, you know, this counterintuitive principle that you, you produce signals and displays that are, very salient and impressive and attract the opposite sex, but that actually hurt your survival chances. And this is why a lot of Darwin's contemporaries in Victorian Britain rejected the whole idea of female choice and sexual selection. They said, no, 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 uh, you know, nature is about efficiency and optimization. It's not about conspicuous, frivolous waste. And Darwin said, no, no, no. There's a lot of color and form and music and ornamentation in nature that is exactly analogous to human fashion or, you know, uh, the arts or high culture or, um, you know, the reason why billionaires in New York strive to get on the board of the Metropolitan Opera, right? It's, it's not about survival. It's about status and attracting mates. And um, you can only do that credibly by kind of wasting matter, energy, time, money, um, or taking risks, in ways that are kind of conspicuous and, and counterintuitive. 
but but it does go along with natural selection in that you could only take those risks if you are really the fittest so you have fitness to to waste yeah exactly the 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 fact that animals differ in kind of how good their genes are and how good their bodies work how well their brains work is what keeps the signals reliable so um, so so why do billionaires go on the board of the opera isn't being one or the other enough or or they have such low self-esteem that they need everything they can it's easy for an outsider to say oh that looks so stupid that's so irrational compared to my little status game right so if you're a nascar driver and you're proud of like shaving a second off your lap time you think that's important compared to that stupid stuff the billionaires do to compete to be on the opera board and vice versa right so everybody derogates everybody else's little status games that's natural that, that's um, true i just derogated the billionaires <laughs> maybe i'm jealous of them and i uh, want to bring down to my levels so I can compete for mates with them. But, you know, you pointed out earlier that we evolved in, a, in these tribal societies, small-scale societies where you knew everybody and your status is really relative to your, your, your clan mates and your tribe mates. They're the folks you care about. So whoever you tend to hang out with in business or leisure time or extended family, you want you know, to be valued in their eyes. And you don't really care what, what people you don't know think of you. Um, and that's a recipe for runaway status competition within every little subculture. But, um, but, here, but here's the one, the one thing, though. Our culture, as opposed to every other culture in the past, has thousands and thousands of hierarchies intersecting and overlapping each other. So if I'm dissatisfied in the hierarchy I'm in, I can switch hierarchies. You know, so if I'm a billionaire, I'm just taking this as an example because you, you started it. If I'm a billionaire, I can move to, I don't know, um, some Kansas City, Missouri, where there might not be as many billionaires, but there's still many uh, good potential girlfriends for me or wives or whatever. And suddenly I'm at the top of the hierarchy. If that's the hierarchy I give value to. Yeah, exactly. You know, a lot of uh, what I tell my college students is, you know, assess your strengths and weaknesses and then try to play in a kind of status game or a status hierarchy where you can do well, you know, pick your market, pick your competition. Um, and a lot of people kind of get stuck playing a status game that they thought was a good idea when they were 18 or 25 and, and they don't switch when, when they could or when they should. Uh, they don't switch based on mating goals as often as they could. Um, and you need to be flexible in today's society because, as you point out, there's so many different subcultures where almost anybody could potentially flourish if they know their own traits and, and strengths well enough. Do you think there's a natural inclination to put yourself in a hierarchy where you're at the middle because we have this natural competitive uh, streak in us somehow? So, so we always want to be fighting to be the alpha uh, of this of the hierarchy as opposed to. Um, already being there and having to protect it? I think it depends on your age. I think young people like to be sort of in the middle of the hierarchy because if there aren't any people doing what you do who are better than you, there's nobody to learn from. There are no mentors. So you're not building skills over time. But as you age, you tend to want to be kind of the higher status alpha um, because you've already mastered your particular game or your, your profession and there aren't that many people other than your peers you can learn from. So I think that's kind of age-dependent. Um, but generally, young people 
um, you know, they like to challenge themselves. Like I tried to get into the best grad school I could. So I'd, I'd have awesome peers and amazing professors. I didn't go to the, the grad school where I could automatically be top dog because that's good for a couple of years. And then it's not very good long term. So, so, okay. What, let's say, you know, I have questions both from the female perspective and from the male perspective. So if you're a woman, um, you, you, as you've mentioned, you have a, you make a greater biological investment in having sex with someone because you could have a kid right then, particularly if you're ovulating and then suddenly you've made a 20 year investment in, in, in a one night stand. And if you're a guy, it doesn't, you could kind of spread it around. At least, you know, most guys or some guys would, would, you know, stick around and raise the kid, but some guys wouldn't. So women have much more incentive to choose the right guy and men really want to court lots of girls in, in this model, I would imagine. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of truth in that. It's kind of like, you know, given that the fundamental biological facts are women can get pregnant and men can't. So there's this obligate investment that you can't opt out of. If you get pregnant as a woman, yeah, you could spontaneously abort and a lot of women do. You could kill the baby once it arrives, which some hunter-gatherer women do if they know there's not enough food. But basically, um, you're pretty committed to raising that kid. It's almost like an investment strategy where the only thing available is a 20-year is a certificate of deposit, right? Mm -hmm. Then you're going to look really carefully at risk and return over the long term. For guys, they can, they can opt out, you know. They can seduce and abandon. Um, they can have multiple mates. They're not necessarily going to stick around as dads. Um, but I think some folks kind of overplay this sex difference. Um, I actually focus quite a bit on mutual mate choice. The fact that, you know, most kids throughout prehistory were born to couples who stuck together for at least a while and who chose each other where there's both female choice and male mate choice. And, but, um, you know, there's, there's the arranged marriage thing too, which has been at least yeah. in – let's call it contemporary society in the past 10,000 years, most marriages has probably been arranged. Certainly there's been a lot of input from parents because the parents care a lot about inheritance, particularly if they're rich. So yeah, you get arranged marriages once you get land and wealth and inheritance and civilization. And even that, now, like there's a lot of pressure from family. So for instance, um, you know, not so much now, but when I was growing up, I remember my, my grandparents, my parents never cared so much. My grandparents were obsessed with, am I going to go out with a, a Jewish woman or not? So yeah. there, there is some uh, family pressure. But what's, let, let's talk strategy now. Like, what's a reasonable strategy for, and let's say, let's assume there's a universe of people out there who we all want the same thing. We all want long-lasting relationships and potentially children and families. What's, what are decent strategies for women? Let, let's start with women first. Well, I think for everybody, online dating is great. It's very counterintuitive. It's unnatural. But um, you might as well take advantage of you know, the numbers and the statistics that particularly if, if you're an unusual person, like you're super extroverted or you're super smart with a high IQ, it's hard to kind of randomly bump into people who will be compatible with you. The most efficient thing is like online dating, speed dating, 
um, or selecting yourself into situations and social networks where people with your traits that you want are already, are already there. Right. So, 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 but this seems like, and I agree with you just from on an, almost on an economics point of view. So assuming always demand for you remains the same. So you want to increase the supply as much as possible. So your value goes up and you can only do that through online dating. The supply is essentially infinite. Um, it almost brings down the value of a relationship because you could potentially churn through so many relationships. Um, so I wonder if that affects uh, our assessment of our long-term, you know, mating prospects. But let's say for the short term, you're doing online dating. What, uh, aren't we missing out on kind of the basic uh, physical things that brought us together for a million years just because in the last 10 years we have online dating? So you can't really assess someone's looks from online dating. Not that much. You can't assess their smell or their grooming or, you know, all these things you list as important, you're kind of assessing all the bottom things like, oh, are they humorists? Are they friendly? You know, are they maybe lying to me? I don't know. Yeah, I think that there are people who kind of use the online dating as a kind of computer game and who don't ever actually want to meet anybody in real life. And they just kind of, I don't know why they do that. They want to practice their like messaging skills or something. Um, well, it's a, it's a so, hierarchy too. Like, how many how many people can I uh, attract? And somehow I put myself in that hierarchy. Say, yeah. So I think you know the key thing probably if if you're a woman seeking you know a great guy is uh, do online dating. Have you know be honest with yourself about your search criteria. What's actually important to you, not just what your girlfriends think you should find important. Um, convert into messaging the guy and then convert into like do some video Skype before you meet him. Oh, really? I've never heard that suggestion before. Yeah, I think it's it's really valuable and there's a lot of psychology research that says uh we can get a lot of information out of sort of seeing somebody even from just a few seconds of video that you can't get from just a static photograph or from written communication. Or what about phone? Or yeah, just call them <laughs> Just don't text. Actually, call them, and but then is, is Skype better than phone. Video Skype, I think, would be better than phone because there's so much nonverbal information, and you can see, you know, somebody's characteristic facial expressions and their their hand expressions and how they actually look when they're moving dynamically, and that all conveys a huge amount of information. Wow, that's such a great idea because it eliminates all the wasted time in like going to dinner with somebody because I find with online dating, um, you know, really within like call it 10 seconds, whether you like someone or not, but then you're stuck for like three or four hours in a dinner. Yeah, exactly. And, and this is the genius also of speed dating where you're, you know, switching tables and meeting a new person every five minutes. The speed dating industry has figured out that, yeah, people can assess chemistry really pretty quickly. Um, and so I think that the key thing is, you know, use online dating as, as the sort of broad entry way into a funnel, but then quickly switch over to, you know, actually call the person, video Skype with them, see if there's chemistry, see how you interact, and then set up a, you know, an in-person um, drink state. Don't commit to a dinner date, but a drink state ASAP. My, um, when I met uh, Claudia, my, my wife, 
Uh, she, I was really pushing for dinner because I could see from her pictures I already kind of liked her, and she, she was like, no, she, she was very firm with all, uh, all online interactions. It had to start with tea and a dead and you know meet at three and a deadline like an hour later. So this way she made sure she went and psychologically uh, get too involved uh, before leaving the situation, and then kind of I guess. I don't know what happens after that, but your body helps you make a decision or your mind or body or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think women in particular are careful not to kind of fall for a guy on the basis of his his verbal courtship, like his messaging and texting before they meet him in person, because then there's a real dissonance like, oh, I feel emotionally connected to him, but he's just a frog, not a prince. And what do I do with that? Right. So. A lot of this is about managing your own emotions as a human and um, trying to kind of set up your your courtship strategy so that you know you maximize your chances of success, but you you minimize your risk and your disappointment and your heartbreak. So, so I'm gonna and I'm gonna ask the same question about men, but how should women maximize? their chances of success. And now uh, men, you know, mostly look at looks and then they look at humor, intelligence, you know, possibly c- career, all these other things. But wh- I don't know, actually, what what should women do first to enhance their attractiveness? Because obviously they want to uh, attract the highest status males, for instance. I think women get a little confused about which things are good to attract men versus which things are good to sort of compete for status with their female friends. So a lot of things that women seem to obsess about and that commercial culture pushes them to obsess about, like what shoes are you wearing, what handbag do you have, what kind of makeup are you wearing, you know, do you look uh, pretty the way that airbrushed magazine models look. Guys generally don't care nearly as much about that stuff as women think guys do, or as much as the female friends do. So I think for most women who are spending a lot of time and energy caring about clothes and makeup and shoes, guys don't give a shit. What guys would respond better to is do some exercise, um, watch interesting documentaries rather than, you know, bullshit TV comedies, uh, build up your mind, your interests. I, I would like... Co- I would like the TV comedies. You might like the documentaries, but... Or at least, you know, develop a broad palette of interests so that you want, when you meet different guys who have different lives, you can talk uh, with some wit and charm and, and knowledge to them. Uh, I think that actually goes, uh, you know, a lot further than Botox and breast implants for the kind of guys that most women would want to date. Are you saying that guys who are interested in settling down in long-term relationships where they take care of children are not as interested in large breasts, for instance? Or uh, what, what are you uh, – are you saying they wait more uh, humor and intelligence than than looks or, or no? Guys will certainly pay a lot of attention to attractiveness when sort of figuring out which women to approach, no doubt. But I think it's more of a kind of threshold effect that a woman has to look kind of good enough for a guy to to be sexually attracted. But there's research to show most guys are kind of at least a little bit sexually attracted to the average woman of, of about their age. 
And women don't understand this because women are not attracted to most guys their age. Women are a lot choosier about physical attractiveness. So women have this Wait, illusion. wait, wait, wait. You're saying women, do women like older or younger? I have to know if I'm in trouble here with my wife. Women generally uh, want a guy who's a little older than them and the, the upper age limit is quite a bit higher than, than it is for like, there aren't that many 30-year-old guys who'd be interested in a 50-year-old woman, but the, the reverse, you know, 30-year-old women will, will often date a 50-year-old guy. Now, um, is that because uh, they feel the 50-year-old guy might be more nurturing and a better protector of children? What if the 50-year-old guy says up front, I'm never I've never had kids and I'm not interested in having kids? Is it more likely then that the woman will lose interest? Most women would lose interest. You know, statistically, most women want to settle down at some point and have kids or at least have that option open to them. Um, so... Uh, you know, a, a lot of m middle-aged guys, uh, if they're divorced, right, they have to figure out pretty quickly, do I want another family or not? And be pretty clear about that. Okay, so from a man's perspective, uh, what can a man do to improve his uh, attractiveness, let's say in a speed dating situation? So so, so let's say he's going to meet the person or, or Skype with the person. Um, wh what can a man do to improve his attractiveness and, and chances of uh, finding a, a girlfriend or a wife? I think the single most important thing is something I didn't even understand six months ago, which is take the woman's point of view. Most young is this guys... The, is this the Tucker Max influence on you in the past six months? It it's actually... Odd... It's kind of Tucker and I influencing each other, but honestly more it's the kind of emails we've gotten from our young fans who are, who are listening to the Mating Grounds podcasts. We get literally hundreds of young guys right in, high school, college students, who give us this long story about their mating dilemmas and their failures and what they want and why they can't get it. And typically, it, for 90% of these, um, never once do these young guys ask, what could I offer a woman? How do I fit into her life? What are her other interests besides dating? They simply don't do any perspective taking at all. What do they do? They just treat the woman as this weird black box that needs to be hacked, right, in some way where it's like she's a mystery. I'm going to figure out what the, the key is to unlocking that mystery without ever thinking of her as a person with beliefs, interests, you know, anxieties, um, fears, hopes. And I think just getting into the mindset of, oh, women are people too. They have lives already. How can I make myself, you know, fun and interesting to fit into her life? That's absolutely fundamental. It takes very little time to do. It's a really useful skill to practice. And it's one that most young guys don't seem to have, apparently, at all. How do you, how do you practice that skill given that, let's say, you know, and you, you use this example a lot. Let's say you're in a Whole Foods and you see a woman in the produce section, if you just go up to her, no matter what you say, there's always going to be the subtext that all I want to do is have sex with you. <laughs> like, I'm talking to you, everything, I'm, all the words coming out of my mouth is just BS until we have sex. Yeah. I, I don't know if, that, if there's a way to get rid of that subtext. Well, the thing Tucker always says is if you switch your mindset from going out and wanting to get laid 
to going out and wanting to meet new people and have fun. That cuts down on this sort of creepiness factor quite a bit. Because if you approach that woman in Whole Foods Produce and you go up to her and it's like, wow, carrots, awesome, let's, talk, let's have a fun chat about carrots. And if your mindset is I'm genuinely interested in meeting you, having fun, talking about the situation we're in, rather than, oh, on the basis of almost zero evidence, I suddenly want to mate with you. Right. That that's which is the which is the base that people start with usually. It is the instinctive base, but what remember what women are selecting for largely is is social intelligence in males. And a key test of social intelligence is okay, she knows you want to mate, you know you want to mate. Do you have the social savvy, at least for a while, to kind of put that in brackets? And kind of suspend that and say, let's pretend we're just people and have fun and talk. And yes, there is a sexual subtext. There is an erotic charge to this. But let's not make that front and center. Don't make it too obvious. Well, then it seems like that involves, okay, not, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to be cynical and say you have to BS yourself into thinking this way, but it does require uh, mental agility, like some mental practice to put yourself in that mindset. Because take take the worst scenario of all, which is a bar. Okay, a, a bar is totally set up just for people to meet sexually or drink alcohol, and uh, so it's different from the produce section of Whole Foods. But still, um, to get yourself in that mindset, require it requires. It's almost like you have to method act or fake it till you make it, like until your mind actually is there. So how would you how would you practice that? You you can frame it as I'm hiding my sexual desire, or you can frame it as I'm honestly signaling my social intelligence and wit and fun, right? And if you frame it as the second thing, that it's not like I'm suppressing something in some kind of like fucked up Freudian way. If you think of it as I'm demonstrating whatever um, etiquette and finesse and, and maturity and um, engagement, um, creativity I can, honestly, right? I think that's a much more positive way to think of it. So, uh, you know, you know one, one possible way to think about it or practice it is a, let's say you see uh, someone you like or could potentially like in the produce section of Whole Foods or like, we keep using that as an example but in the park walking around in the park and um, you could you could practice viewing this person as not a, a woman you want to have a relationship with but you could assume that she has friends you'd probably like also so you could practice assuming oh, I'm gonna uh, get her to uh, I'm gonna enjoy a conversation or friendship with her, so I get to meet her fifty friends and then have a much wider selection. Yeah, I mean, for me, like when I was dating in New York last year, or you know, in Austin uh, this this summer, it's it's kind of golden to be a psychologist because when you talk to women and they find out you're a psychologist, and particularly that you study mating, you immediately have awesome stuff to talk about because they can complain about every bad date they've ever been on and you can kind of give you little insights and go oh, there is some research on that and blah blah blah. and the great thing about that is you're talking about sex but not in a way that's that 
comes across as predatory to her. Um, on the contrary, she automatically knows you're treating her as a person in the mating market because she gets to tell you her stories about other men. And also, you're, she knows you're trained to see if she's uh, maximizing her own potential as yeah. uh, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, in terms of the status of, of women or whatever. And honestly, some of the funnest dates I've been on are with women where, like, we clearly didn't have any chemistry in the first 10 minutes, but we still had a fascinating two-hour talk about uh, kind of how to fix up each other's dating lives and our kind of game, where it would be, well, we, we clearly aren't interested in each other, but let's be mutual mentors so that our next dates with whoever follow each other are, are better. And that can be super valuable. Yeah, um, so essentially you get a wingman who's a girl. Yeah, you get a mentor who's, who's a woman, hopefully an experienced woman, hopefully who's candid. Um, and guys have this stupid fear of being friend-zoned, like, oh, she's not interested in me, so suddenly her value drops to zero. No, as you point out, she might have amazing female friends, she'll have her own insights, you know, unless you're Don Juan, world-class expert on courtship, there's still a huge amount to learn from every single person of the opposite sex who you meet. So here's, here's what I would like to learn, which is that given that our brains evolved over a million years and that society itself has changed drastically, only a small fraction of that, and I'm going to call it 10 to 20 years, uh... How can people evolve their personal psychologies as fast as society has evolved? So, for instance, take jealousy. So it's reasonable a million years ago for a human to be jealous because their selections are, are limited. So if they're with somebody and somebody else approaches, hey, get away from you know, my family or get away from, you know, this woman that I'm going for because there's only three other choices. But now for both men and women, there are so many choices and so many ways to meet people. Um, but we're still jealous as if we were living a million years ago. So how, how can, how can psychology evolve the way society has evolved? How can I, for instance, not be a love addict or a jealous person as much as say my equivalent a million years ago? That's a really good question, and it's one I think you know society as a whole should probably talk about quite a bit more, because we tend to think of, oh, I have some emotional reaction to some sexual situation, like, oh, that makes me jealous, or that makes me feel sexually disgusted. I'm going to politicize it, I'm going to make it into a cause, and I want to ban it, or control other people's sex lives. Or else we, we say, I have this emotion, jealousy, that means... Uh, lifelong monogamy must be natural and right, right? Um, when I teach evolutionary psychology to my students, I, I point out the better you understand the functions that emotions serve, the easier it is to control your own emotions. With jealousy in particular, the, the basic, you know, adaptive reason for, for male sexual jealousy, like getting pissed off if, if your female mate, you know, sleeps with another guy, is... Uh, well, under prehistoric conditions, she could get pregnant and you could end up being a stepdad and 
wittingly or unwittingly raising some other guy's kid. At and, a huge, and so the, and, oh, go ahead. You know, at a huge reproductive cost to yourself in terms of like missed opportunity and investment in that kid. And so males evolved sexual jealousy to avoid uh, this paternity uncertainty. Like she could get pregnant with that other guy. But now we have contraception. So if, you know, some girlfriend goes off and has a great, you know, week wherever in, in Barbados with some lover, if I'm consciously aware that, oh, my male jealousy evolved to deal with that pregnancy issue, and if I'm confident she's on contraception and wouldn't have his baby, it actually takes some of the sting out of it. But even as you say that, though, I feel like, ugh, I can't even imagine my wife going off to Barbados with with somebody else. So does this make me sort of screwed up because of uh, I've got this mammalian, this reptilian brain from like a million years ago or 10 million years ago still screwing with my emotions? It's not at all messed up. It's, I mean, it's perfectly natural and adaptive and sensible and, you know, nobody should beat themselves up about having these emotions. But um, also be aware, you know, as you point out, they're not perfectly adapted to the modern world. Some of them are, are basically vestigial or they're no longer serving the functions that they evolved to serve. Um, and, it, and there are some little mental tricks that we can develop to kind of uh, take control of those emotions to a larger like, degree. Like what? Um, I think mindfulness. You know, almost every modern clinical psychology intervention that works, weirdly, is based on third-hand Buddhism. So uh, there's a huge push now that psychotherapy needs to be evidence-based. We should only do psychotherapy that's shown to work particularly short-term interventions. So if somebody comes in, they've got a marital problem, a dating problem, what they'll be taught is mindfulness or meditation or here's how to experience your thoughts and emotions without owning them or giving them more credibility or, or validity than they deserve. Because and people obsess... Um, yeah. they get in the, they, when they need this intervention, it's because they're obsessing. Like, my boyfriend or girlfriend cheated on me, and I can't stop thinking about him or her with the other person. They obsess. Yeah, so, Some neurochemicals are being triggered that are just swarming all over the body. Yeah, they're, they're depressed or they're anxious, basically because they have certain negative thoughts, and then they, they invest so much energy and, and credence in those negative thoughts. So mindfulness is just a way to kind of say, yeah, I'm having that thought, but th that's no big deal. That doesn't mean it's true. It doesn't mean it's relevant. It doesn't mean I have to act on it. Um, so that's one method. Second method is just taking the other person's point of view. We get so wrapped up in our own little, you know, solipsism, our own view of things that simply talking about some of these issues, like if you have a mate and she's you know, got some flirtation or crush going with another guy, you're allowed to talk to her about it and, and maybe say, oh, that's cool. I, I kind of see what you see in him. Don't be threatened by that. Just usually if you talk to somebody about these anxieties, they'll kind of allay a lot of your fears because we automatically blow up these situations into like worst case scenarios. And the more you communicate honestly and openly about them, usually the more reassured you feel. 
So these are in situations where there's already a relationship, but then there's potential uh, for one side or both or, or, or the other to, to go away with somebody else. And what about situations where you're not yet with the person uh, and it's almost the exact opposite. So you're not with a person, but you think um, after the first date, oh, I'm totally in love with this person. So kind of like this, you know, love addict aspect. Uh, how, where does that come from, from an evolutionary perspective? And how do you deal with that? Yeah, romantic love is tricky, um, particularly for men, because men fall in love faster than women. Um, and women fall out of love faster than men. Is so, that because women have to really be sure because they've got this this one egg, this one child they're going to give birth to for the next year, so they've got to really make sure so they're not going to fall in love so quickly? Yeah, the women have to be more cautious and choosy, and they can't just throw themselves willy-nilly at, at every guy around them because you know, without contraception, you will get pregnant within three months of regular sex. So, So um, a guy... A guy will uh, fall in love very quickly then and potentially have his feelings hurt because the woman is not falling in love as quickly. So, so again, this is something that maybe uh, they were able to deal with a million years ago, but now we live in like a different world. Yeah, I mean, that's the story of my life in high school is, you know, falling in love with women too quickly and then it's unrequited and they're not into me. And that's super common. But here again, if you understand the adaptive function of the love, Right, the function of romantic love is to focus your mating effort, focus your courtship on one particular object. Um, and men particularly do that because if you kind of spread your, your courtship effort out to dozens of women, like, oh, I'll talk to her for five minutes today and then this other woman for five minutes, that's not enough courtship for any one woman to really get interested in you. So we kind of have to specialize, at least for a while, and, and direct all that, that romantic energy to one woman. Um, the danger, as you point out, is she might not reciprocate. Um, and then you have heartbreak. Well, that's... Sorry, dudes, that's a natural part of life. That's how the game works. Uh, so, the key is not to take the heartbreak too seriously. Now, what about... Um, is there any truth to the notion of a biological clock for both men and women like at women at the age of let's say 35 is their biological clock truly ticking where they suddenly um up the up the ante on how much they're they're looking for a long-term partner there's i'm sure that happens i mean we psychologists have failed you guys the rest of society this is not well researched um, I've never. Why not? Like that seems like something that would be pretty easy to research. I know, right? It's it's crazy, but um, that's a whole other topic of why your federal tax dollars are not being spent on the kinds of really cool, useful, actionable research that would massively help people's marital and private lives. Um, so there's what, no what, research. What's your, without research, what's your gut on that, though? Yeah, I I absolutely. Think that you know, I dated lots of women in New York in their 30s, and they certainly were in the mode of saying, "I've spent the last 10 years working really hard on my career. I don't want to spend the next 30 years just doing career stuff. I want a family. Are you the now, right guy?" Is that a societal pressure though, or an evolutionary pressure? Like, how do you tell the difference? 
it's hard to tell the difference. I think it's it's partly societal, but you know, professional women get a lot of social um, status and positive reinforcement for being workaholics, and they actually don't get a lot of pressure to, you know, find a mate and breed, except from their moms. So. I think mostly it's a personal feeling like there's something you know empty or missing in my life or I would regret it if I didn't have kids or having kids is the only way to keep a guy around long term. I think that's part of it. Um, and so it does become a priority. Uh, and you know more than 90% of women in modern Western societies still end up having kids at some point. And do you think uh, guys go through a similar thing? Let's say a guy who is approaching 50, um, that, you know, they don't want to be 70 when their kid graduates high school. They might be feeling a similar sort of pressure. But not as much biological, I would think. It, it might be as biological, it's, but it, there are big individual differences here. Some guys actually have a really strong desire to become dads in their early 20s, Right. Some women have a really strong desire to become moms in late teenage years. Uh, and, you know, society kind of judges them very negatively for that. But that's the biological norm. You know, there would have been very few prehistoric females age 20 who didn't have a kid. So. Yeah, it's, so people it's, started young. People started Young, they didn't hit puberty quite as early because their nutrition wasn't quite as good. But, um, yeah, they would have all been sexually active by late teen years, and sexual activity for women means they would have gotten pregnant within a few months. So let's let's talk about um, how did other things arrive from an uh, evolutionary perspective. Like, you, you, start to, you, you talk about art in your book, The Mating Mind, which, by the way, it, everybody should read. It's an excellent book book, The Mating Mind, How Sexual Choice Shaped the Evolution of Human Nature. You talk about the evolution of art, of charity, of all these things that don't really seem to be related to either survival of the fittest or sexual selection. You know, you kind of have the runaway theory where it's just sort of random which traits became um, we evolved towards. But I wonder if that's true. Well, I developed the whole mating mind idea just from kind of personal experience of observing what women are attracted to in men and vice versa. And if you, you know, talk to women in grad school, they'll go, I don't know, I keep falling for these guitarists and drummers, and I know I should be falling for the chemistry PhD students, but I just don't find it romantically attractive. Or Yeah, so 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 it's not so much the artist or guitarist, it's I could ju- I could say they're falling for the unavailable men versus the available men. So, because the, these men are unavailable because, for whatever reason, they have a large amount of choices, so they're less available. So, so what, what, what's the reason why women might tend to be attracted from an evolutionary perspective to unavailable men? Well, particularly for young women, there's a lot of mate choice copying, as the biologists call it, where if you're a young, inexperienced female, you don't really have your mate choice system kind of calibrated yet. It's like a naive investor who doesn't understand a market, right? So what you want to do is kind of imitate the choices made by older, more experienced females, or at least by your peer group through a kind of crowdsourcing of, of you know, mate value. 
So what tends to happen is you get these runaway status effects like Beatlemania or, you know, Justin Bieber or whatever, where young women look around and they see other young women idolizing some random guy and they think he must be, there must be something going on there that's, that's worth paying attention to. And then they all kind of converge on the same, um, it's almost like a runaway fashion effect or, a, you know, a, a tulip. But let's, but let's but let's take it a step further. Like uh, you see, and this is not just women, but men also could tend to go for like some men like going for women who already have boyfriends or husbands, or some women like going for men who are already married. Like they specifically keep going for unavailable people through their twenties and thirties. Yeah, I think some do. I think there's a couple things going on there. I think for some people it's just a kind of social proof effect that, oh, married guys are kind of more interesting because there's some woman out there who's chosen him and stuck with him so far. And that's a powerful source of kind of social proof that there must be something to him. So, at least some woman out there thinks he's he's a cool guy. And then if you meet the wife and she's amazing or high status and and discerning that automatically makes her husband more attractive because she's already kind of done the mate choice for you in a sense so it's funny cuz you mentioned um that we often get our status from our parents so let's say someone was born uh in some weird fashion lower status whatever that means they might um because of maybe self esteem issues view the unavailable person choosing them as a way to raise their status. And so understanding this, this is where we go from evolution to psychology, can actually help them deal with this neuroses. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is another thing I didn't really think very deeply about until the last year, that a major function of boyfriends for a lot of women is to raise the woman's status among her girlfriends. So that it almost doesn't matter as much how attractive you are to the woman, she's kind of automatically thinking, what are my friends going to think of him? And so if you have the traits that make you a cool boyfriend to talk about to her girlfriends, that automatically makes you more attractive. And it's interesting because that's true for high school and let's say to a slightly lesser extent in college. But then once you're out of the kind of standardized school system, you could choose your hierarchy again. I think I think the main thing people need to be aware of or or use mindfulness for is that they can choose the hierarchy that they're ranking themselves in. And I think people are afraid to do that. Like so money becomes a big hierarchy for for men and, and for women, but in particular you see men obsess over money. Um but but there are many hierarchies out there to choose from. Yeah, and you know, consumerist capitalism and the marketers out there would love for all of us to just invest all of our mating effort in being workaholics and runaway consumerists and just thinking of money and conspicuous display and consumption as like the only legitimate way to attract mates. Because if we do that, then we'll buy more shit and work harder. Or, um, or look at like social networks where the gamification of how many Twitter followers do you have, how many Facebook followers do you have, like that, that's a hierarchy as well that probably shapes some mating decisions in both directions. Yeah, and that's, that's a kind of interesting alternative where you've got this kind of social network capital that can be quite different from how much money you actually have. 
but that you can still kind of translate into mating success. Uh, so I think a big takeaway here is, yeah, you're allowed, if you're a single person, to choose what status hierarchy you, you kind of compete in, what, what mating market you choose. Um, find one that suits your individual strengths and weaknesses and the kind of people you want to meet. Um, and don't get stuck playing the same mating game that you played 10 years ago. Don't get stuck being too influenced by marketers about what they would like you to do with your time and money. Um, and, and just be experimental. Try different things, you know. Um, and it seems also like you want to be aware of what decisions are, you know, on the basis of your current hierarchy and what decisions are on the basis of the fact that a million years ago, this is what our, our ancestors were, were doing. Not that you, like, can, can you actually fight the impulses created by millions of generations of our ancestors or, or thousands of generations of our ancestors? Can, can we fight like that, like jealousy as opposed, you know, along, you, you suggest being mindful, but can we really fight these inclinations? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've literally evolved a prefrontal cortex for self-control, right? There are parts of the brain that are specifically there to help us override kind of instinctive gut-level reactions precisely because we evolved in larger and larger social groups where, you know, the older, more primitive, faster mammalian reactions didn't work as well. And we need to be able to kind of have an interrupt switch that says, no, don't do that. Um, you don't need to feel jealous. You don't need to escalate this conflict into a physical aggression, whatever. We're, we're literally equipped with the self-control abilities uh, to do that. Um, and particularly, you know, the better the insight we have into our instincts, the easier they are to control, I, I think. Well, well, the one way in which I'll play the devil's advocate is that the prefrontal cortex also... Uh, is is the product of so much anxiety as we plan every possible worst case scenario that can happen. It's almost like um, you need exercises to connect the emotional parts of our brain to this decision making part of our brain so that it's healthier. And I don't know if you have kind of like as last words, like what are some exercises or, or techniques or tricks to kind of improve exercise that connection between, I guess it's the amygdala, which is the emotional part, to the prefrontal cortex? <clears throat> I, I think for a lot of young people, I would just emphasize the value of perspective taking. Put yourself in the other person's shoes. If you're a guy and you think you're falling in love with some girl, um, it's very easy for your kind of rumination and, and anxiety system to kind of take over and go, what if she doesn't like me? What if she does? What's going to happen? Um, and for your instincts to drive a lot of behavior, like I'm horny, I want to get laid. She must be the one I must invest everything in her. Well, you don't necessarily need to solve that war between your kind of ruminative anxiety and your instinctive lust, but you can kind of step back and go, wait, let's just get out of my head and a little bit into hers and ask what's her life, what she really like, what can I offer to her? Is she seeing anybody else? You know, what are her mate preferences? I think just getting into the other person's head and appreciating their wants and needs and fears is one of the most powerful ways to kind of get yourself out of this 
this downward spiral of kind of, you know, instinct versus repression. So, so having the ability to kind of put yourself in someone else's shoes, I think is, is more difficult than just mental practice. Like I think for instance, if you, if you drink a lot, like if you're constantly drunk every night, you probably have less ability to do that. If so, if you don't exercise, uh, or if you're not eating the right food, you probably have less ability to do that. If you're not, if, if in general, most of your friends are kind of creepy people, then you probably have less ability to do that. So it kind of like, there's a, a range of lifestyle choices, uh, to make, to kind of exercise this, this, uh, ability. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point about choosing friends who have, um, who are trying to cultivate their own habits. So if if you're a young guy and you're hanging out around with whatever a bunch of frat guys or sexist guys who, you know, just objectify women, th- that's going to be bad for you. Not because objectification's kind of intrinsically wrong, but because it doesn't like if they're not practicing putting themselves in the heads of the women they're interested in they're going to fail with those women. Um, And you want to find guys who make it a habit to show genuine interest in the other sex and who don't just kind of talk their way in circles about, well, this is what I, this is my way of stereotyping them. Let's, let's all share the same stereotypes. Because there's that saying, you're the average of the five people you have closest around you. So, so clearly you're going to, uh, uh, you know, just like you were saying earlier about women trying more to improve their status among their friends, guys also should sort of pick the hierarchy where higher status means better ability to put themselves in the shoes of another person. Yeah, and I think cultivating, you know, friendships is is almost the first and and in in a lot of ways most important steps in uh success in mating and dating building your same sex friendships is enormously powerful in terms of you know your social proof and sharing information and you know all of your male friends become kind of your scouts and like they'll tell you about an interesting woman they've met and vice versa um but also it's hugely efficient because it takes like five percent as much effort to make friends with a guy friend if you're a guy as it does to court a woman into bed right really Uh, yeah i mean why would that be like like we're friends and uh was wasn't that hard exactly right it's so easy to make friends with guys but a lot of guys don't bother um because they i guess they think i must be goal-directed and go straight for the women and they don't realize oh if i have a a group of awesome guys, you know, five guys around me and we all raise each other's game and make each other better men. Um, that's very, very powerful. Um, and it's, it's kind of a neglected skill among uh, a lot of folks today where, you know, particularly young guys are just spending all their time at home texting, Facebooking and video gaming mm-hmm. and not actually so, so- friends. So, so one other question I have, which I'm curious about, is where does where does art fall into this? Like, so again, you talk about art in the, in the mating mind. How did how did art develop uh, in society as either something relating to natural selection or sexual selection? Like, because it's it's and related to that is anybody who has a billion dollars would probably wouldn't spend any more than if they had five million dollars. Like, you know, there's only so much, you know. 
you could spend in life. You don't need a billion. So so where where does all the extra where did all the extra waste in both uh, culture and finances and so on happen in society from an evolutionary perspective? Well, I think a lot of it is really mating effort, and it really is analogous to the peacock's tail. But some of it is also just status competition, like between people who already mated or even between mated couples. So, for example, I had a PhD student, an anthropologist, who studied uh, Renaissance palaces in Florence and was trying to figure out why did these rich bankers in the 1400s build these massive palaces, some of them like 80,000 square feet. Is it because they had a whole bunch of servant women they were sleeping with and impregnating or a whole bunch of mistresses? Apparently not. They were basically doing it as a conspicuous display so their own sons and daughters could get semi-arranged marriages with other rich families. So they weren't competing directly to attract mates themselves. It was sort of on behalf of their kids. And then they try to establish a family dynasty that can use the same palace for centuries um, so, so is that like instinctive like for instance uh, later today i'll take a look at my analytics on how many downloads my podcast has had or how many times my blog posts have been read is this some kind of like million year instinct like i think that if i have i, I place myself in this hierarchy of of social media so i think if i'm higher status my daughters will have better potential mates in the future like through some some weird instinct i've, I've evolved with i think there's a lot of that yeah i think middle-aged and older parents actually keep up their own appearances in large part so that they look good for their young maturing kids to get better mates. I'm super conscious of this since I have an 18-year-old daughter, right? Uh, 15 and 12 uh, for me. So, you know, I kind of feel obligated that, you know, if I meet one of her boyfriends, I want to be a cool dad so that he respects her and, you know, partly I want to intimidate him so if he ever mistreats her he knows I'll like come after him and hunt him down and and eliminate him but partly mostly it's just I want to be an attractive incredible and high status person on her behalf for my kid I and again there's not much research on this but I'm convinced it drives a lot of adult behavior well well the thing is it's not about you know it seems like evolution is not about your specific survival, but the survival of your DNA. So your daughter is going, and your and your potential future grandchildren have your DNA in them. So you want to make sure your daughter finds somebody who's good enough to keep your DNA going. You want your grandchildren to have high uh, potential status so they can find good mates. So this is your this is almost like not even evolution, but like your DNA talking through you. Yeah, your DNA talks through your brain, and that's called instinct. Um, and there's a misconception that, oh, all of our ancestors in prehistory were dead by age 30. No, absolutely not. The best anthropological evidence says the designed sort of typical human lifespan is, is about 70. We're designed to live a long time. It was very common to have people in middle age and, and older adults around sort of... Um, trying to help their kids succeed in their own mating lives, you know, for the sake of having the highest quantity and quality of grandkids. And of course, for the young people, that feels like meddling by your mom and dad. 
But from the mom and dad's perspective, you know, the young people are their gateway to genetic immortality. And if they don't pick a good mate and have awesome grandkids, then they might as well have never bothered having kids in the first place. Um, do you see the movie uh, Lucy starring Scarlett Johansson? I haven't yet. Uh, there's a scene intriguing. in there. Oh, say that again? It looks intriguing, though, partly because of Scarlett it, and partly because I want to see how many massive neuroscience errors the movie contains. Yeah, I'd be really this. interested in your, um, in your opinion after you see it because Morgan Freeman um, gives a lecture in the beginning. He's giving a lecture to a bunch of, uh, I guess, evolutionary psychologists, and he's basically saying, you know, men, when they're... When they're about to get, when they're in a disaster scenario or, or harsh conditions, they're concerned about survival. But when they're in safe conditions, they're concerned about reproduction. And, but kind of in both cases, they're concerned about immortality. So, uh, you know, in the Im- immortality of their DNA. Uh, yeah, it was interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating how my field, you know, the evolutionary psychology has kind of trickled down through screenwriters and, uh, into TV drama and popular culture, uh, where it's actually more accepted than it is in academia, which I, I, and I'm perfectly comfortable with that. Well, that's the case with every field of science. Like, look at, you know, I uh, again, I'm going to quote you. You you actually have H.G. Wells making theories about sexual selection in 1899, um, 80 years before you know your peers were doing it. Mm-hmm. So, so science fiction writer, science fiction has definitely found its way from fiction, you know, within half a century in different fields to reality. So the same thing could be happening here. Yeah, the science fiction writers are usually about three decades ahead of the scientists in terms of thinking through most of these issues. And you, say, you see the same thing in like behavioral science, which I guess is a close cousin of evolutionary psychology when it comes to investing. You know, the, the idea of when to go to the herd, as a, go with the herd as opposed to opposing the herd and how that affects the, the markets is, is always very interesting and is very uh, down to our basic psychology. Yeah, I think there's a really cool sort of confluence of evolutionary psychology and behavioral economics and behavioral finance and game theory and... Um, you know, a lot more serious interplay among psych people and economics people, finance people, business schools. Uh, I don't know where it's all going, but uh, it's it's a great time to learn about these things. And I think these kind of scientific insights are becoming ever more practical and actionable in both people's mating lives and their, um, you know, investing in careers. Well, I'll tell you, uh, and and this is to to close, I'll tell you where it's actionable for me personally, and I wish I had told myself this when I was 18, which is that to, to, again, be mindful of what's an evolutionary instinct as opposed to what I have a little more control over in my daily life. And the way I would get there is making sure I'm physically fit and, and, you know, as groomed as well as I possibly could and that I'm eating well and that I'm... Sleep is really important at kind of connecting your emotions up to your prefrontal cortex. And then I would also make sure I was spending time with people I liked. And and like you said, trying to put myself more in the shoes of others rather than just like aiming for, oh, my God, she's beautiful. I have to go for this. You know, just being like a, a dumb idiot around women. Like I was just an idiot around women all the time. 
Yeah, just cultivate your life, meet new people, have fun, and then, you know, mating success kind of follows almost automatically from that. Just like money, actually, I think is a side effect of that. So if I focus on my physical health and emotional health and creative health, so you mentioned humor a lot in your podcast, if I focus on my creative health and if I focus on kind of my spiritual health, and let's call that mindfulness, I, I have personally found money to be a side effect of that as well as let's call it mating success because when I started doing that I met my current wife yeah absolutely money's kind of just the, the way that um, the world keeps score of how well you're managing your life that's and, a good way to and, put it and mating success similarly is sort of women will notice how men manage their lives and be attracted to those men and vice versa so 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 what's the quote there money is is a way society or the world uh, keeps track of how you're Keep, keep score of how you're managing your life. Yeah, exactly. I like that. All right. Well, Jeff Jeffrey Miller, author of The Mating Mind, and also um, co-host on the great set of podcasts, The Mating Grounds. And and Jeff, what's your next book going to be called? The one you're doing with with Tucker Max. It's going to be called Mate M A T E: The Guide to Sex, Women, and Dating. Um, it's especially for young men, but basically any guy who wants to understand better. Um, what women want and how to cultivate the traits that that deliver value to women, I think it'll be of interest to them. And uh, when's that going to come out? It'll probably be late 2015. So late we're still, 2015. We're God, still, you guys take a long time to write. It. Yeah, we're actually pretty quick, but publishing is slow. Um, and why don't you self-publish? Um, we actually want this to have kind of the credibility that comes with a big six publishing house, Little Brown and Company in this case, um, because we okay. want mainstream media to kind of take it seriously. We know how to reach our fans and to build our platform and, and market the book, but we also want to um, create a dialogue in, in broader popular culture, and it's, a, it's just a little easier to do that with a mainstream publisher than self-publishing. Will you do additional things like newsletters, webinars, you know, build community around it, kind of like how Neil Strauss did with the game, you know, in a different, in a different way? Yeah, for sure. The, the Mating Grounds company that we have is, is going to um, diversify out from just doing the podcasts to doing all kinds of things. Um, we're doing original research. We're probably going to have videos. We're going to launch a YouTube channel. Um, all kinds of information products. Um, but the general theme is is sort of how to get better at mating and life in a way that's based on scientific evidence and good insights and that offers a win-win for both sexes rather than seeing courtship as a kind of battle of the sexes where, you know, men have to manipulate and seduce women or vice versa. Uh, we really think there's... There's kind of money on the table. There's a, there's a huge upside for both sexes to win if men uh, become better boyfriends. Well, I hope so for the sake of my daughters. So yeah, me thank too. you very much. Thanks, and, James. Jeff, thanks for uh, joining me on this, on this podcast. I really appreciate it. It's been terrific. Thanks, James. Thanks, Jeff. For more from James, check out The James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today.
Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.